Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we are chatting with Kelsey Burke about her new book, Christians Undercovers, Evangelicals and Sexual Pleasure on the Internet. Welcome to the show, Kelsey. Thanks so much. So just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, um, and as is probably obvious from the title of my book, I study religion and sexuality um, in contemporary America. Um, and I'll say I, I love listening to this podcast because you get to learn more about who authors are and their background. Um, and it's always one of my favorite parts of books, typically that are ethnographies, um, if there is a methods appendix where the author can write about their place in the research. Um, so my place in my research and my place really as a sociologist comes from my own personal background and um, biography. So for me, a queer person studying religion, um, my story, or at least the outline of my story, I think is a really common one. The summer before I started high school, I was invited by a friend to join her as a volunteer for a vacation Bible school program um, through the Baptist church in my small town. And I did that. And that was basically the start of um, my whole life outside of school revolving around that church community. So I was eventually um, saved. I became born again. I was baptized, which was actually for a second time because I was baptized um, as a baby in a Methodist church. Um, so, so the church um, and evangelical Christianity really became a big part of my life um, but at the same time that all of this was happening, I was having this other internal struggle where I sensed that I wouldn't be able to conform to the teachings that I was hearing in the church about sexuality. So eventually I stopped going to church and I transferred out of the Baptist college that I was attending at the time um, to a public school. I uh, came out as queer and I majored in sociology. So uh, sociology became a way for me to um, step back and process my own experiences, I think, by um, studying both theories about religion and sexuality, and then also by um, studying empirically how religion and sexuality come up um, in the lives of others. That's really interesting. So how did this book come about for you? Well, the book began as my dissertation. And I entered graduate school with this background, knowing that I wanted to study evangelical Christianity and issues related to gender and sexuality. But I was really having trouble um, coming up with a, a focus and a specific um, research question that could guide the dissertation. So um, in the spirit of qualitative ethnographic research, my advisor encouraged me to find a group that I could observe as a researcher as a kind of pilot study um, to see what questions and topics emerged that were of interest to me. So 
I asked for permission to attend a summer women's Bible study group at a large non-denominational church in the suburbs of my city um, and just started showing up and listening and taking notes. And there was one week where we were talking about the book of Esther and the importance of women dressing modestly so as to not sexually tempt men. And we were in this small prayer group and I could see one woman was getting like visibly agitated. And finally she spoke up and she said, I am just so sick and tired of hearing in Christian groups how important it is for women to dress modestly when I think that God celebrates when I um, wear red lipstick and show off some cleavage because it excites my husband. And that's why God made sexuality in the first place. And I remember I, I took notes and I had a bunch of like underlines and exclamation marks in my field notes. And I was just so surprised, as were everyone else in the small group study, um, to hear this woman talk in this way about her own sexuality. And I just couldn't um, get that exchange sort of out of my head. And so that evening, I was thinking about it and decided to just Google to see if like other Christians were talking in this way about sex and sexuality. And what I found were these websites that were essentially Christian sex advice websites created by and for other evangelical Christians to talk about sex in a really positive way, one that um, I was unfamiliar with and that um, surprised me and ultimately led to what became the book project. Yeah, that's really cool because it seems like such a taboo topic and, and something you bring up in the book is that there's sort of this, you know, even in mainstream society, we don't see them as going together. <laughs> um, and so I was kind of curious actually about your methods in particular because it's sort of a taboo topic and you use particular websites. I was hoping you could talk about this kind of virtual ethnography that you re refer to in the book. Yeah, so the internet became really important both for the topic I was studying and then methodologically for, for how I did that. So um, many of the people I interviewed, so I interviewed both um, creators of these websites that I call collectively Christian sexuality websites that included bloggers, um, people who created message boards. There was one very active message board that um, I get an extensive amount of data for the book um, from, and they have nearly 30,000 active members on on this site. So it's a very active um, website. And then there are also online stores that sell um, what are often referred to as intimacy products. So these are sex toy stores um, owned and operated by Christians, often Christian women, sometimes Christian couples. So um, for the people that I interviewed who created or participated in these websites, the internet was important because it was important for them to feel like they could be anonymous so they could talk openly and honestly um, about their own experiences, their desires, their thoughts and feelings. When um, for most of their home churches, churches they grew up in, churches they continued to attend, um, talking about sex was something that they didn't feel comfortable about. And, and many told me that they felt like there was a sort of constant refrain that sex is bad, but then that message doesn't necessarily shift when, when churches start acknowledging sex and sexuality within the context of, of marriage. 
So um, I drew from a tradition of um, ethnography that uses the internet um, to sort of meet people where they are. So people were already engaging in conversations on blogs and on message boards. So not only did I analyze um, that data as content, but then I also conducted interviews um, via private chat rooms. So where I would chat back and forth with with interview participants so that that was really um, reflecting how they were already having these conversations with other Christians on the website. Great. Thank you. So in the introduction chapter, you give us a lot of like theoretical background where you argue that this case can actually be viewed from a feminist and a queer perspective. So I was hoping that you could um, sort of talk more about how the social constructive construction perspective and, you know, ties to power and inequality and these kind of theoretical backgrounds set the stage for your book. Yeah, so I think it sounds sort of counterintuitive that I present this um, case as something that we can examine from a queer or feminist perspective. I examine um, the vast majority of, of the participants in my study are white, heterosexual, cisgender, um, married Christians. But I think um, if we don't take for granted those categories and actually question how they come to be through conversations, um, that that can become a very queer project in in dismantling um, the stability of, of the categories in the first place. So I take the text on the websites really seriously and that how they talk about not only religion, but also how they talk about um, marriage and sexuality and by extension, gender and sex categories, that we can come to understand how these get created um, within these religious communities virtual and otherwise. So um, I describe my framework as looking at how interaction actually leads to these identities um, to come to be, um, and that these interactions are always bound within um, different um, regimes of, of power. So that's true when it comes to gender and heterosexuality, and then also um, religion, you know, in this case, Protestant Christianity. In terms of the sample that you used, you sort of briefly gave an overview of them, but you did some comparison between sort of the, your sample and a nationally representative sample. And so I was hoping you could sort of talk about what you found there um, in terms of your sample. Sure. So one of the challenges of studying people that for the most part, I, I did not interact with in a face-to-face -face way um, is, is that um, I think people can question or wonder like, well, who's, who's using these websites that claim to be Christian sexuality websites? So most don't identify explicitly as evangelical. But as I describe in the book, I, I think all of the, the the orienting beliefs presented on the sites really reflect what scholars would call evangelical Protestant Christianity. Um, and so I was able to conduct a study, or I'm sorry, conduct a survey, though it wasn't representative. I was able to get um, a sample from seven different websites, almost 700 people responded to the survey. And I asked them about demographics and then also asked about their attitudes and practices related to both religion and sexuality. And then I was able to assess um, if this group seems to be an outlier when it comes to um, how they 
reflect or represent um, the broader um, religious traditions from which they come, um, or if they seem to be similar. And what I found was that at least demographically, and then also when it came to um, sexual attitudes, that um, the, the groups using these websites seem to be fairly similar to evangelical Christians um, nationally. So then you sort of get into the meat of the project and you start off by talking about who is allowed to have sex. Um, and so you, you mentioned here that users appear to be more comfortable making claims about who can have sex um, rather than making judgments about what they can do sexually. So what does that mean? Yeah, so what I thought was interesting in starting to examine um, websites and then also what is, uh, uh, that I haven't mentioned yet, but a longer tradition of Christian sex advice in terms of evangelical publishing. So since about the 1970s, um, Christian books have included um, sex advice manuals or marriage manuals that offer advice and insight um, for how to improve married Christians sex lives. And I think this really pushes against um, a a dichotomy that we may seem to have in our minds about um, conservative versus progressive or um, traditional versus modern. So um, how Christians or how these evangelical Christians write about sex sort of complicates that distinction. So on the one hand, they have very firm boundaries about who is allowed to have sex. So in their minds, it should be um, people who are legally married, who are monogamous, um, and who are heterosexual. And I I write also that they believe in um, the sense of of gender normalcy or that um, men should exhibit this essential maleness and women should exhibit this essential femaleness. But beyond that, then there's a lot of room um, within those parameters for what couples can do sexually. So they then draw from um, modern, even progressive, even feminist sensibilities about um, what pleasures should be available to couples. So there's an often quoted Bible verse from the book of Hebrews, and that is, um, the marriage bed is undefined. Now I'm not going to get it right. I, I sh- should have written it down. The marriage bed is un. It, so it's. Uh, I'm sorry. It, it's something about the marriage. I've I've read it so many times now. The marriage bed being undefiled, and so what is available within the marriage bed um, is quite expansive. So so that's where they're they're sort of playing with both traditional values and modern ones. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting in terms of. Also, what you refer to in the first chapter is the inhibition paradox. So sort of this idea that it's hard to shed these negative ideas on the wedding night, as you refer to in the book, um, and how that sort of ties into uh, their feelings about um, gaining this information online. Yeah, and I, I think that this really showcases the the prevalence and and why Christian sex advice really flourishes, both in um, print literature and also online, that um, evangelical Christians uh, have the belief that God created sex and sexuality to be enjoyed by married couples, and therefore it should be um, amazing and 
um, extraordinary. But then, of course, the the practical reality is that um, if a, a, a couple has grown up in a conservative church that hasn't talked much about sex, they likely run into some problems when all of a sudden they're allowed to um, enjoy the sexuality they believe God created. So I think this really propels an industry of, of Christian sex advice and points to what I call this, this inhibition paradox that um, can be a real challenge in, in individuals' lives. Do you think that sort of inhibition paradox ties into what you talked to in chapter two, which is sort of the internet ambivalence and, and this idea that, you know, there's still this line that they sort of draw between language and um, sort of um, risque crude language? Um, so in terms of tying these two things together between this inhibition paradox and in- internet ambivalence? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it's I think the the theme that that ties those things together is that sex is still a sort of scary territory because it's it's always wrapped up in a sense of sin. It's always wrapped up in um what what the folks in my study would call a sort of secular culture um, perverting um, God's God's notion of of sex and sexuality, and this is perhaps no better um, showcased than on the internet. So it's it's as if evangelical Christians who use these websites are sort of playing with fire, and that the internet seems to be a very dangerous place when it comes to sexuality, but also one that can offer. Um, a a lot of resources to improve their lives. So I write about in the book, all of these, I think, interesting and creative strategies that both creators of websites and then users of websites come up with in order to justify how they use the internet. So for example... Um, one of the women that I interviewed who owns and, and operates a, an online um, Christian sex toy store. So it's a store that sells sex toys and um, it, it identifies itself as Christian um, for the reason that she wants her customers to know that they can shop at her site and they won't encounter any pornography. So um, viewing pornography um, is seen not only as a sin, but also as a kind of epidemic that is affecting Christian Christian men in particular. So for people who want to avoid pornography, they can shop at this woman's store. But so I asked her when I interviewed her, um, what's it like for her to have to be, I assumed, exposed to pornographic materials in order to um, get her merchandise to then um, sell to her customers. And um, she actually explained to me that she takes um, labels that might include pornographic material and covers them with stickers so that um, her customers won't have to see them, but she can still um, sell a wide range of products. And she explained that to me that, that that's not a temptation that affects her, that she doesn't let her husband go to any um, places where you know she might be looking at inventory or merchandise, but that for her, it's not something she struggles with. So she feels like God has given her this gift that she can then use to help improve the lives of other Christians. So um, the theme of exceptionalism comes up at various points in the book. Um, And I think this is one example of this, that um, for Christians who um, create these websites, that there's this sense of that they, they are the right kind of Christians to be able to um, do this work. Yeah, and that ties to another concept that you 
or, or sort of idea that you bring up in chapter two, which is that there's not really any identifying information on most of the users and very rarely of the people who are running the websites. And so sort of tying that to what you were just talking about is kind of an interesting aspect of the book too. Yeah. And so uh, what you can observe uh, in these online message boards is strategies that website users come up with to create some boundaries between insiders and outsiders so that it's clear that, um, at least in the minds of, of the people that I interviewed, that they are talking with and engaging with people who are um, really who they say they are, that they're not just trolls or people who are trying to um, provoke arguments or disagreements on the websites. So they write about how, um, or they, they explain how um, other website users have to have to have certain markers that, that sort of signal to them that they are authentic Christians. So one of the things that I observed is that people frequently talk about their prayer life and often even post to message boards as if they are um, reciting a prayer. Um, and that there's also a shared sense of um, beliefs about gender and sexuality that that unites people on the sites. And this is often explicit um, in terms of gatekeeping of owners of the websites. So um, on one of the message boards that I observed, um, moderators would remove any content that might disagree with the idea that God um, created sex only to be enjoyed by married heterosexual monogamous couples. So this shared theology about um, who should be allowed to have sex was also one of the ways that people identified um, insiders and versus outsiders. But I also, in my interviews, would often press website users about this, like, but you are still talking about really intimate stuff related to your lives basically with with people who are who are strangers to you and and they um, returned to their faith in God as how they they reconciled with this as as a potential threat or fear and explained that um, they felt like people who were using the sites were there because God had a plan because God wanted them to be there so even if it's someone who is potentially trolling the site or is not who they say they are that still God brought them there for a reason yeah you talk about this sort of higher calling and seeing seeing it sort of like the all-seeing God so it's that they don't need to judge each other because God will judge them right that's right. And um, that that really has some big implications when it comes to what kinds of conversations can have online or happen online. So um, the, the books that I read and analyzed um, for this study, so Christian sex advice books, um, talked all the time in euphemism. So one of my favorite um, lines from one book is that um, men are like microwaves, women are like crockpots to explain people's um, you know, sexual desires, men and women's differing sexual drives. Um, but online, people... Um, were much more direct and and really explained in a lot of detail um, about their their desires, their experiences. And I was um, constantly struck by the lack of judgment to other users when it comes to their sexual activities within their marriages, when there was such clear judgment um, when it comes to who isn't who isn't allowed to have sex. And the way that website users explained that sense 
sense of openness with other website users was that um, God knows more than than they do. That ultimately, if another website user explains that they have a sincere faith in God and that they have a sense that their sexual desires are um, something that God approves of, then other website users would would not be inclined to um, push back or argue against that. That's really interesting. Um, so then in chapter four, you turn to women specifically. And here, the sort of theme that comes out a lot is sexual awakening. But then you mentioned that it's also these women see this sexual awakening as really tied to a spiritual and emotional, um, their emotional and spiritual lives as well. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. So I have two chapters in the book that deal explicitly with the the different and sort of imbalanced um, experiences of men versus women who use Christian sexuality websites. And for women, I found that in both um, the interviews I conducted with website users and then also the content I analyzed online, that by far the most um, frequent reason women look to websites to get sex advice was because they wanted to learn how to orgasm. They wanted this sort of basic level of sexual pleasure, and that they came to believe that they were really entitled to achieve it. So um, Christian sexuality websites are very validating in that way, in validating women's um, experiences and that they have a right to experience their own sexual pleasure. So um, women felt very empowered by hearing this message. And uh, So I I use the sexual awakening story as the way to examine their stories, because this is how they often tell their own stories, that they once um, did not know how to understand or experience their sexual pleasure or their sexuality. And then there was this turning point where they're then able to experience pleasure. So it's a lot like um, a salvation narrative that I once was lost and then I was found. And so for many stories, women talk about this physical sensation of pleasure, the physical experience of sex and sexuality. But for other women who are still um, unable to achieve orgasm or feel like they still are unsatisfied physically in their sexual lives, They write about um, spiritual or emotional satisfaction so that they can still hold claim to having experienced this sexual awakening. So I think that says something really interesting about the gender dynamic um, on the websites that's reflecting evangelical culture at large. And that is that women's sexuality is still really connected to um, women's husbands and and ultimately to God, the other male authority figure in their lives. So the sexuality that they describe and the sexual pleasure they describe um, is always in relation to these these male figures. And so if if not through um, physical pleasure, then they're able to describe the emotional satisfaction they get from, for example, pleasing their husbands. So then you turn to men in chapter five and you talk a lot here about uh, gender hegemony and less discussion of God in the in the topics that they bring up. And so I was hoping you could talk about what you found with men. So my chapter on men um, is, is one that examines what I would be the first to admit are really um, the outliers on um, the websites that I studied. But I found that these um, 
examples were so rich sociologically to to showcase this window of what happens when, so I, I refer in the book to the logic of godly sex, this sense of um, who is allowed to have sex along with what they're allowed to do sexually. When, when some evangelicals are trying to push that logic as far as it can go to its extreme. So when I write about men, I use the example of men who are interested in kinky sex and specifically gender subversive sex. So I talk about um, two particular interests, the interest in pegging or the anal penetration of a man by a woman and an interest in erotic cross-dressing. So a man who's interested in wearing um, women's lingerie typically as wife's lingerie. So these are extreme examples that most evangelical Christians would be extremely wary of because of how gender subversive these acts are. Yet I was really surprised to find um, what were often very mundane conversations on blogs and message boards um, about these particular acts. So asking, for example, of um, recommendations for sex toys that would offer the greatest pleasure um, and and people responding, you know, without expressing any outrage or surprise over um, a man's initial interest in these acts. And so um, even though these conversations would be um, in the minority and, and not all Christians would approve of them, the fact that they take place on these websites um, I think it is really interesting, and, and it's interesting that men in particular are much more likely than women to describe their interest in kinky or unusual sex. So men are able to explore the sort of deepest realms of their sexual desires, and and women are, are often talking about just how, how they can achieve orgasm. And um, so I find that um, how men and women both talk about um, kinky sex on the website, often men's interest in kinky sex, says something really interesting about how evangelicals come to understand gender in particular. So I use this concept of gender omniscience, which suggests that they describe gender as not something that's, that's purely reducible to biology, but that actually depends upon um, these relationships that um, a person has with his spouse and then also with God. So even though men are the ones who are more likely to be describing these interests in kinky sex, um, women really serve as, as gatekeepers to whether or not other members of the online community um, where these discussions are taking place, if they'll approve of those sex acts. So for example, I analyzed a thread where a man was talking about wearing his wife's lingerie in secret. And the, the overall reaction on this message board was that this was inappropriate, it was sinful, that he needed to disclose this with his wife. But on the other hand, when conversations um, it took place between a website user and his wife where um, he was open with his wife about his sexual desires, people were much more likely to be supportive of that interest. Um, and that's true also for how website users describe um, praying to God or prayerfully considering their sexual desires um, with a God who knows intimately um, the, the, the real motives and the gender identity of, of people who are interested in these acts. So I think the, the sort of a gut reaction to men who are interested in pegging might be, well, does that signal some sort of 
homosexual interest or same-sex attraction. And um, men were able to counter that um, reaction by saying that they had prayed to God about their interest and that they really believed that God approves of their desires. Great. Thank you. So um, is there anything else in your book that we haven't talked about yet before we get to the big takeaways? So I think there are a few takeaways beyond, I mean, it's interesting that I ended talking with this sort of niche category of, of, of evangelical men who are interested in kinky sex. Like what can that tell us more broadly about sociology and about this relationship between religion and sexuality? But I think it, it really has um, some interesting insights um, for those of us who are who are interested in these issues. So in the conclusion to the book, I use this metaphor um, of desire lines or desire paths. So this is something in, in architecture or city planning that's talked about. So we've all likely noticed like in a city park, there's like the paved sidewalks. And then you see like the paths or the trails where people just want to walk and then other people walk walk those routes also, perhaps they're a more direct way to get to a destination. I think this is a really great metaphor to think broadly about what is really central to how sociologists understand the world, which is this um, tension and relationship between structure and agency, or between um, constraints on people's actions and choices, and then people still being able to, to take action and make choices. So when it comes to these Christian sexuality websites, I think they act as kind of desire paths that um, they can do something that is is really unique when it comes to religion and that these are ordinary people. These are lay people who are for the most part not ordained ministers. They don't hold leadership positions, but they can take on the sense of authority um, through these websites. And, and I, I describe the websites as what Irving Goffman calls reference groups. So by giving feedback for some desires versus others, by sort of creating a culture and ideology surrounding gender and sexuality, and often that can go quite off course from what are the prescribed rules that are either written in published Christian sex advice books or what are sort of the dominant um, ideas in in mainstream evangelicalism. So in some ways, you know, ordinary evangelicals can say whatever they want on the internet, but in order to be validated um, within this online community, there's still these structures. So like the oak trees that people don't chop down or try to climb over, that they just accept that these are part of the structures that orient um, orient the paths. So, so for, for these website users, heterosexuality, marriage, and monogamy are these three structures that um, are, are really not challenged um, in the communities that I studied. So I think this tension between structure and agency is really showcased and how for religious people, it's, it's this combination of possibilities um, combined with the religious traditions from which they come. So, so that's one takeaway. Um, the, the second takeaway, I think, is that we often stereotype or have stereotypes about evangelical Christians in the United States based on who are the, the loudest and most visible evangelical leaders, so reflecting the religious right of the the past several decades. And I think that um, both the the public and also sociologists can paint 
evangelical Christianity with a really broad brush. So not necessarily paying attention to um, the complexities or nuance um, with which evangelical Christians make sense of their religious beliefs alongside their um, sexual desires. So I think this this tells us that um, the story of the relationship between evangelical Christianity and sexuality is is really more complicated than than we might assume. Um, and the last takeaway, I think, is that we can think about how Christian sex advice can be a window into um, American sexual politics, of which evangelicals are a really prominent um, figure in these debates. Um, so on the one hand, I think we can look to like the, the last example that I talked about, which is the, the last substantive chapter in the book where I talk about men's interest in kinky sex. And, um, you know, we might say like that it seems as if an evangelical position that is sort of championing the idea that is um, anti-queer, anti-gay, really doesn't have a lot of firm ground to stand on, given um, all of the possibilities that are described within a conservative evangelical context. Um, On the other hand, I think we can look to the strategies that website users um, come up with in order to um, protect this sense of um, religious rules surrounding sexuality that might suggest that these religious rules are actually perhaps some of the strongest um, when it comes to um, political positions related to conservative sexual politics. So another way to say this, I really like um, Jenny Hockey and her co-authors have a book called Mundane Heterosexualities, and they define heterosexuality as a residual category. So to say that heterosexuality is like made up of all of this stuff that that makes it come to be, and it has to do with gender, and it has to do with marriage, and it has to do with monogamy. And we can see how all of these things are being challenged in our contemporary culture now that gay marriage is legal, now that we can't assume someone who appears to be gender normal is inevitably heterosexual. heterosexual. So uh, religion seems to be um, this way that um, conservatives can still hold on to heterosexuality as this privileged category without dealing with some of the other discontinuities that are a part of, of our, our modern day culture. So I think that, that the relationship between religion and sexual politics will um, for a long time be one that we should be paying attention to. Great. Thank you. So today we've been talking with Kelsey Burke about her book, Christians Undercovers, Evangelicals and Sexual Pleasure on the Internet. So what are you working on now, Kelsey? Well, I'm working on now a second book project that started with all of the stuff that I had to leave out of this book project. So I mentioned earlier in the interview um, online discussions that I read about concerns over pornography. This came up frequently in um, my interviews with website users as well. So I I became interested in um, 
Christian groups that are created for people who identify as um, pornography addicts or who struggle with using porn um, to try to overcome this addiction. And from there, it has expanded to include not just religious groups, but also secular groups that are interested in this issue. Um, And from there, I became interested in Um, a number of states that have considered or passed resolutions that declare pornography to be a public health crisis. So um, this is the next project, and it's expanding beyond just um, a a study of of religion and really to be a study of American culture more broadly and how um, religion influences these, these debates about sexuality, particularly about pornography and pornography addiction. That sounds really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So thanks again for being with us today, Kelsey. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed your questions. 